God has deeply blessed our church with the gift of hospitality. It's one of the ways that God is most manifest in this fellowship. Every church is like a fingerprint. It's unique. The ways God manifests Himself are, are different in different churches. I'm struck, as so many uh, of you are and have commented to me, that one of the great gifts of the Spirit to God, of God to us and among us is fellowship. One of the ways that we see this playing itself out is in the rich friendships that are nurtured in this congregation. We also see it in the way so many people in our congregation um, really open up their heart in their home, not just to people they know, but to the stranger. Now, because of this, God is, has been leading me for a year now um, to, for us to focus our attention on the way His love works in friendships with one another, with people we know, and the way His love works through us to the stranger. So this week, I'm going to be talking about the love of friends, and next week, the love of the stranger. If you have your Bible, find the passage that was read from 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18, the story of David and Jonathan's friendship. Now, while you're turning there, let me just say to you, my prayer for our church is that we would, number one, celebrate what God is doing among us. Right? If, if somebody who loves you gives you a gift and you don't ever really even acknowledge it, that's its own form of insult, right? That's its own form of lack of gratitude. One of the things we as a church need to do is recognize the way God is working among us. And secondly, my prayer for us is that we would embrace it even more deeply into our lives and our hearts. 1 Samuel chapter 18 is an amazing description of the friendship between David and Jonathan. Look what it says in verse 1. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And then again in verse 3, because he, Jonathan, loved him as his own soul. Now this is the type of friendship that Aristotle described as a single soul in two bodies. The Greeks often thought and wrote and talked about friendship. It was one of the kind of preeminent matters of discussion in Greek culture. And Aristotle wrote a lot about it, and he said this kind of friendship, this deep friendship, it's a single soul in two bodies. And some of you have been blessed with that type of friendship. You've been blessed to have that truly deep friendship where there is such an experience of joy and peace between you and this other person. This is the type of friendship where there's a deep harmony, when two people have a fundamental similarity. When you spend time with this kind of friend, you discover here's someone who has experiences like me, who thinks like me who processes situations like me. Here's someone who loves the things that I love and who shares my perspective on life. In this type of friendship, when you're talking with this person, it's so deeply comfortable 
Ralph Waldo Emerson said, it's, it's, it's those moments where you can truly speak your mind and be at ease, where you're not afraid, where you don't feel like you have to filter, process, or package your thoughts. It's, it's the little old couple, right, sitting at Denny's, and they don't even have to say anything. Now, there is one couple that's doing that because they ignore each other, right? But then there's the other couple for whom the presence of the other is comfort. This is that friendship. Most of the time, these friendships take time to develop. But sometimes, on rare occasions, like it appears to be with David and Jonathan, they can happen almost immediately. And I'm sure that in a room this size, there is someone, probably several people, who've had an experience where almost immediately you developed a profound bond with another person. This happened to David and Jonathan it happened 1900 years later with my favorite British poet of the 19th century, Alfred Lord Tennyson. When he went to college, he met a guy named Alfred um, Arthur Hallam, and they immediately became great friends. In fact, now when people read their poetry, they wrote poetry to each other. And because friendship between men has become impoverished in America... Many people reading the poems of Tennyson and Hallam think there's some sort of homoeroticism going on. And similar people in America have tried to say that's going on between David and Jonathan. But only a culture that's been stripped of the riches of male friendship would think that's the case. It happened with Hallam, it happened with Tennyson, it happened with David and Jonathan. But whether this type of friendship happens immediately or grows over time, what I want you to see here with David and with Jonathan, that the type of friendship we see here, the type of friendship that so many of us have experienced is one of the profound forms of love that God the Father, Son, and Spirit have given to humans. It is a gift to humans. Turn with me to John chapter 11, our gospel passage, where we see the friendship between Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They had a deep friendship. Now, we're never told exactly why Jesus was particularly and uniquely close with this group of people. We're not told why. We're not even told exactly how it happened. We're just simply told that it was there. And there are several stories in Scripture that highlight while Jesus was the friend of many people, he had this kind of David and Jonathan friendship with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then Lazarus dies. And in one of the most moving scenes in all of Scripture, there's Jesus, Mary, Martha at his tomb. And the only time in Scripture we're told, anybody know? Jesus wept. And theologians, locked in their ivory towers, debate about why he was weeping. But friends know why he was weeping. Only somebody locked in the world of the mind would debate this. He's weeping because his friend has died. And it's so moving that the people in verse 36, they're astonished. They say, wow, look how he loved him. And it's the word for love in the Greek language, phileo, that means friendship love. It's not a diminishment of love. It's a type of love. 
Friendship love isn't lesser than agape, this Greek word for the love of God. It's a different type of love. See how he had such a deep friendship with this man. It's not unlike what happened when Jonathan died. You don't have to turn there, but if you're familiar with it, in the, set, in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 1, David is told of Jonathan's death. And listen, you know what David does? He writes a poem, just like Tennyson did at the death of Hallam. And listen to David's poem. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. If you're familiar with the biblical account of David's life, that's an astonishing statement. <laughs> really, what an incredible insight. Augustine, one of the most influential Christians of all time, he lived in the late 4th century, early 5th century. He once described his love for a friend who had died, sweeter than all the pleasures of life. James says every good and perfect gift comes from God. Surely this is one of the greatest gifts that God has given humans. And it's rooted in the Trinity. God has the capacity for a relational love with His peer, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And He gave us that capacity and that gift. He invites us into His love and to experience His love in every type. Remember, Tennyson and Hallam, after Hallam died, he died young, he died tragically, he was off on a trip, and he was in Italy, his father comes home, comes to the hotel or whatever the house they're staying in, and Hallam is dead, he's 22 years old. The, the letter that was written to, Al, to Tennyson is just earth-shattering as they announce to him the death. Tennyson then takes 18 years to write a poem, In Memoriam, that is the chronicle of his grief. He actually first titled it, The Way of the Soul. Here's how a soul moves through life as it encounters grief. And he wrote some lines in this poem that I bet you did not know were about friendship. I'm betting you've heard them and you thought they were about romantic love. Listen to them. I hold it true whate'er befall. I feel it when I sorrow most. Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. That was written about friendship love. We quoted in America about romantic love because we've got such a deep impoverishment of friendship love. Every, that's one of the reasons homosexuality is proliferating in our culture is because there is no category for a deep love between people of the same gender. There's other reasons, but that is a serious issue. We, we Men don't have the right to say this kind of stuff to each other today. We feel uncomfortable saying it. Our culture has robbed this from us. And it, the problem with that is it's a gift from God that we are giving up in spades. But friendship love is one of the most profound forms of love that God has given us. Jesus and John, John who wrote this gospel, whose name never comes up in the gospel, instead only an epithet comes up in it. What does he refer to? What is the author of John's gospel only referred to in John's gospel? The beloved, the disciple Jesus loved. Four times. He's described as a disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus apparently had a uniquely close relationship with John. After all, all of the other disciples fled at his crucifixion. Only John remained. And it was to John that Protestants have a problem with this. They often try to explain it away. Catholics do another thing with it. What did Jesus say to John on the cross in his extremity? 
He gives his mother to John to put her in his care. This is the love of friends. Some of you who've been around church a long time, you've heard that passage at the end of John's Gospel. Do you love me? Do you love me to Peter? And you know that it's, do you phileo love me? Do you, all that stuff. And we get into all these debates about what's higher and lower. It's not about higher and lower. It's about type. Now, this is just a quick survey of three portraits of friendship in Scripture. David and Jonathan. Jesus with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Jesus again with John. It's just the tip of the iceberg. Friendship is a pervasive theme in Scripture. And you can't find it just by looking up the word friendship because in the time that the Bible was being written, just like today, you can refer to something without reusing its name. You can refer to a whole collection of ideas that are within the field of that subject. And all through the Bible, these issues are raised. Why? Why did God give humans this gift? And why must we as a church reflect upon it, embrace it, celebrate it, and take all the risks that are required to live it out? Why? Four reasons. Number one, I think four, if I remember right. Yeah, four. Number one, friendship love gets us to the heart of what it means to be truly human. Number one, friendship love gets us to the heart of what it means to be truly human. Now, what I'm talking about is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, And God created man in his own image. It's the, the icon by Rublev. It's father, son, spirit. It's a relationality. This means that we're in his image means there's some very important similarities between us and God. And one of these is the ability to reach out to the other, to incline ourselves toward the other, to open our heart toward the other, to have a true interdependence with another person. In John's Gospel, Pilate looks at Jesus while he's on trial and says, Behold the man. And the reason John included that in his Gospel 50 years later is because John knew that Pilate was speaking truth, that Jesus is a true human, and that when you look at Jesus, that's what it looks like to live a truly human life. He is the true human. That's why our collect, the prayer, help us to follow the example of Jesus. And one of his examples is that he opened his heart into deep friendship with other people. You want to be truly human? You must do the same. Number two, friendship is necessary for me, Aubrey, for Amelie, for each of you and myself, for each of us individually, it is necessary to become who you truly are. I don't mean truly human in the broad sense. I mean truly Jesse in the unique sense. What is the essence of Jesse? Who did God make Jesse to be? What is the Jesse-ness of Jesse? You see, to be made in the image of the triune God means that friendship is necessary for me to become most individualized, most who I am as an individual. Who is Aubrey? Who did God really make me to be? You see this with people, don't you? As your children are growing up, you see them with friends and them changing with groups of friends, don't you? You see them reflecting different groups of people. But every now and then you see the real person. 
It's not when they're alone. It's when they're in the right group. The right group pulls it out of them. You cannot discover the real you. The you that God made you to be apart from good friendship. That's the way God made us. Friends have a way of helping us identify who we are, discovering who we are, and that's, that's, what it, that's what we need to become healthy people. Now, a third reason. Friendship is also necessary to become godly. And I'm not talking about any old friendship. You see, friendships can quickly devolve into a club of mediocrities where we only flatter one another and never truly help one another where we merely empower one another in our dehumanizations. Friendships can be clubs of mediocrity. But true, deep friendship, the kind of friendship I'm talking about is in Proverbs 27.6. Mike likes to quote this all the time. Better, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. Why? Because friendship love has a way of doing something in us that we need to be done in us. Because when you're deep in somebody's heart and soul and life, you can see the glory and the darkness. And you can have the permission to deal with it. And let's be honest. Often when it comes to true good friendship, lovingly helping one another, it often boils down to a choice between courage and cowardliness. Revelation 21.8 says cowards go to hell. For most of the church's life, the virtue of courage and cowardliness as a vice has been preached on. I don't think it's a coincidence that in a culture that is diminishing friendship, our churches no longer preach about cowardliness as a dangerous vice that threatens your soul. It could be that with your friend, the reason you haven't talked to them about what's going on in their life is because it's not the right time. Or it could be that you're a coward. The difference is wisdom and foolishness. You have to know the difference. Proverbs, is it 26? Six, verse 4, do not rebuke a fool in his folly lest he become like him. Verse 5, rebuke a fool in his folly lest he become wise in his own eyes. So which do you do with your friend? Well, you've got to have the wisdom to know. But you need to be sure it's wisdom holding you back and not your own cowardliness. Because you need that in your life and your friend needs that in their life to become godly, to become who God has made them to be. Because friendship is fundamental to the logic of what it means to be truly human, truly ourselves, truly godly. Number four, fourth reason that friendship is a pervasive theme in Scripture is because friendship is a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. It's, it's an appetizer of the new heavens and the new earth. The Bible has quite a bit to say about what life will be like when everything is said and done and God returns and makes all things new. And one of the most prevalent ways that the Bible describes the new heavens and the new earth is a feast, a banquet among friends. And that's not a symbol, that's a reality. In other words, those moments when you're with a friend and your soul is deeply connected, that is a foretaste of what life will be like. And, and that's great for some because some are so lonely 
There is coming a day where you will not be lonely anymore. There will be a day when all the problems of making friends, and some of us have been so ruined with this capacity by the pain of this world, there is a day when you will be healed and you will have a deep friendship, not just with one, but with so many. The whole image of the new heavens and new earth is the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a wedding party where friends are there and Scott is doing his funky wedding dance. <laughs> I'm only sorry that the Miltenberger dance party after their wedding could not experience Scott's moves, which I have not experienced myself. They live in myth and memory. <laughs> But it's not only that friendship is a foretaste. Get this. Friendship is a gift God give, gave us in order to whet our appetite for the new heavens and the new earth. It's so important that you party with us this afternoon. We're not doing spiritual things now and in a few hours we're going to put on a secular hat and do something that's not spiritual. In a few hours we're going to be given a foretaste of what life will be like. But not only that, you know, what it, you know what's going to happen at a great meal? At a great meal with great wine and great food and great friends. You know what happens? An appetite for more is created. Where you want it again. You want it more. You want it more deeply. That's the gift of friendship. Now, how are we, the church of the incarnation, to receive this gracious gift from God? How can we embrace this more deeply into our own lives? Let me take just a few minutes here at the end to try to work this as deep as I can into your soul. Number one, resist isolation. How can we as a church, you as an individual, how can you help your children to receive this gift from God? Number one, resist isolation. I'm not... And you can get so good at isolation that you can fake everybody out. Because you can be in the room and in the group, but you've closed off your heart. Resist isolation. If you struggle with depression and being alone in this world, I see this happen so often with college students. There comes a moment in college where some students enter into a dark depression, and the worst thing you can do in that moment is lock yourself in your dorm. Now, there are some psychological issues that do require aloneness, but this is not healed by that. When you find yourself tempted to crawl into your house and to not come out or to crawl into the cell of your own heart, resist it. And Satan is so pernicious, isn't he? The ways he uses to push us into isolation. I mean, I'm sure it's already happened and it's going to happen time and time again. Because we are one, sinful people, we're going to hurt each other in this room. And two, because we're ignorant people, we don't even always know when we hurt each other. We are going to do things to each other that is going to just make you want so bad to pull away, to isolate yourself. But remember, you, if you want to discover who you truly are, if you want to become truly human, if you want to become truly yourself and godly, you must open your heart to friendship. Number two, give thanks. It is so important to give thanks. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, only those who give thanks for the little things receive the great things as well. If you feel like your friendships are thin, give thanks for what you have. That's a good route 
to deepening them. Don't be so cynical. Don't be so, lack such gratitude. The Bible is filled with commands to give thanks. And if this is one of his greatest gifts, then you need to do it, not ambiguously, but specifically in your prayer life. Give thanks. Make a list of the friends you have and go through them and just give thanks. Give thanks to God. It says in Psalm 100 verse 4 that giving thanks is the entrance into God's presence. You feel alone, you feel sad, you feel out of sorts with God, you feel like you can't reach Him. Here's a good route. Give thanks. Give thanks for the friendships you have. You feel like you don't have enough friendships. Philippians 4, 6 says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Tell God what you're thankful for in your friend life, and then ask Him for more if that's what you need. Number three, a third way I think we as a church can really embrace friendship is we need to continue to resist the prevalent habit here in America of dividing life into two categories of sacred and secular. Do not divide your life into sacred and secular. What I mean is that so often after worship, people in this room stand around and linger for half an hour, an hour, hour and a half, two hours. And then some of you leave here and linger some more over meals with friends or family. Do you you know what we're doing in these moments? We are basking in God's gift of friendship. You know, it's kind of like um, if somebody gives you a gift and you never open it and never use it. That's a sad thing. But if you do open it every time you use it, you're honoring the giver. It's not spiritual when we worship and then when we move into fellowship time, this other thing, or the, when we go to the Napotniks this afternoon to party. It's not like we've... Sh- All of that is spiritual if we mean by that the Spirit of God is interested. He's given us the ability. He longs for it to be a part of our lives. Number four. We're going to work this deep into our life. You cannot be friends with everyone. On two levels. One, you can't have deep friendship with everybody in this room, right? Jesus had a deep friendship with John, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And that in no way meant that he ostracized other people, didn't open his heart to other people. One of the things that's going to happen, some of you, because of a particular insecurity you have, you'll find out that I've got a really close friendship with somebody closer than it is with you. And you'll feel like somehow that violates pastor-congregation relationship or somebody else in this room. Well, can I just say that's immature? And it's unfair to me. Don't expect me to form my best friendships out of the church. Is that really what we want? And and, and don't expect everybody in this room to be as close to everybody as everybody else is. There's a way of having deep friendships that's not cliquish and exclusive. There's a way of empowering other people because you know what? You just don't click at that level with everybody. But that level of clicking, what it does is it teaches you how to open your heart to the other person. You can't be friends with everyone, but that's not the main thing I want to talk about. The main way, the main thing I'm talking about when I say you can't be friends with everyone, look at it from this angle. If friendship is necessary to become truly human, truly who I am, then friendship is powerful. It is a force. It is nothing to take lightly. And so John says, 
James. In James chapter 4, verse 4, anyone who even wishes to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. James reflected a lot on friendship. And he realized that teenagers, you have to be careful with who you allow to be this close to you. Now, anytime you're reading the Bible and you come across the word world, you need to be careful because the word world is used in the Bible in several different, sometimes contradictory ways. For example, we sang earlier about the world, Ferris, Lord Jesus, Lord of all, right? This is my Father's world. Sometimes the word world just means what God created. We should love the world. For God so loved the world. But here James says friendship with the world is enmity with God. That's a total different way of using the word. Other times, like when Paul writes in Romans, sometimes the world is not just what God made. It's the part of this creation that humans inhabit. Says this, it says, Paul wrote in Romans, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Other times, it means everything in the universe that is against God the totality of unredeemed life dominated by sin outside of Christ. Sometimes that's what the word... It's when we use the word worldly. That's typically what we mean. This is what Jesus meant when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. See, if you get confused there, you got big problems. If you think it means it's immaterial, it's some floaty Casper convention thing, then you're, her then you're basically on the verge of heresy. When he says, my kingdom is not of this world, he doesn't mean it's not of this physical place. He means it's not of all of the system that is riled up against God. It's what Paul meant when he said, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. He doesn't mean don't live a physical embodied life. He means there is a part of this world that we sometimes call worldly that is so anti-God, we've got to come out of it. It's what Peter meant when he set, talks about escaping the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Look, if you're confused on that, you're going to think what we do this afternoon is worldly. And you've just made a category confusion that is serious problems. Now listen again to what James says in James 4 verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Back in chapter 3, James vividly describes what he means by the world, by a person who is worldly. It's a person, he talks about wisdom from above and wisdom from below. It's a person who's bitter and jealous and selfish and ambitious and boastful, and the list goes on. But then he says, then there's another kind of person. And he says, this is the kind of person who's a godly person. They're pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and sincere and filled with the good fruits of the Spirit. Now, this is really important. If you're there in James, look at chapter 2, verse 23. He says, The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Clearly, James in chapter 2 and 3 and 4 is very concerned about friendship. Why was Abraham a friend of God? It was because he saw life according to God's perspective. And he lived life according to God's perspective. Now listen close. There are some of you in our church who are in real danger because you have friendships at this deep level 
with worldly people. And I'm telling you, from 20 years of pastoral ministry, it leads to divorces. It leads to all manner of tragedy. There have been so many... Janelle and I have very good friends. I have sat with them and begged them to stay together. But one of them has been in such a deep friendship with a person that appeared to be a Christian but was in reality had a worldly perspective that all of the way they processed the conflict in their marriage was through that lens. You cannot afford to make a mistake on this issue. The stakes are too high because the power of friendship is so great. Do not let your soul be knit to someone who is not godly. Don't do this. And there are some in our church and you are precipitously there. And I'm praying for our church on this. I'm not saying we can't be friends. I'm using this other kind of friendship, right? I've preached a lot on being friends with the world. Next week, I'm going to preach on the love of the stranger and the love of people who aren't like us. I'm, I'm not talking about don't be friends with non-Christians. We're talking about this type of friendship. Number five, last point, I think, the way that we can embrace the gift of friendship into our hearts and lives as individuals and as a church is we need to give ourselves more fully to this gift. Don't think that because it's rich among us now, that that's all there is to it. I hope that the richness of it among us now has not satisfied us. I hope it's created a deep hunger for more. We need to give ourselves to it more fully. After all, and for some of us, this is going to be risky. For some of us, the biggest obstacle to this kind of friendship is the hurt and pain in our life. It's just too risky. When you've been betrayed by a close friend, when you have leaned on someone as a crutch and they shattered under your arm and the splinters have pierced your heart, you know that this is hard. But just remember this. All loves are vast and inconvenient and dangerous. It is better to have loved and lost. And never do. That's, what, that's what Tennyson said 18 years later after despairing of suicide himself because the friendship was so great and shattered and snatched from him. When he gets through it all, he says, but you know what? While love is vast and inconvenient and dangerous, to resist it is to become subhuman. It's to be dis dehumanized. If you're tempted to protect your heart from hurt by being overly cautious and by thirsting for no one, I beg you, take the risk. Please, don't wait for certainty. If you wait for certainty, you never get married and you never form deep friendships. You cannot be certain someone will not betray you. You cannot be certain of that. Don't wait for certainty. Drop your guard. Be wise, but open your heart to friendships. Now, for some of you, that's not the issue. For others of you, the biggest obstacle is your time. A really wise man gave me a great piece of parenting advice one time. He said, Aubrey, the best way to have quality time with your kids is to linger. You just have to linger. Do not underestimate the importance of bagel and coffee hour and lingering. We have to have long meals together. 
You know when you go to a church and everybody's gone within minutes. You know something's wrong. And it's hard to do that. It requires an enormous investment of time. And to form a deep friendship requires so much time. If you are working too much to take time for this kind of friendship, your life is out of balance. You are in sin. Repent. Sin is resisting our, our creatureliness. It's resisting the way God made us to be. It's choosing... We dig wells for ourselves that hold no water. You know, it's choosing a way of living that we're not meant to choose. I'm not saying we don't go through seasons of life where we're really busy. Obviously, that is the case. But, the, but you've, got to have, you've got to have the honesty in people around you who can honestly say, you know what, it was a season, but now it's become a habit. We go through seasons. We've got to let each other go through seasons. But we also have to have the courage to say to each other, change your life. This is not who you were made to be. In the 4th century, the Archbishop of Constantinople, Gregory of Nazianzus, he was a contemporary of Augustine, a little bit older, 30 years older or so. Gregory said, if anyone were to ask me what is the best thing in life, I would answer, friends. Gregory of Nazianzus was a saint. He was more godly than anybody I've ever known. And he's not giving a weenie answer there. He's not giving a sub-Christian answer there. He's not giving some self-help bestseller answer there. The deeper he went into the heart of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the more profound he saw was the gift of friendship love. God is pouring out his gift on us as a church in this area. Let's embrace it even more deeply. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes?